as we continue the story of Abraham and God's fulfilling his promises to him, I think it would be helpful for us to pause a moment and look back over the last few chapters to understand how these sections fit into the overall flow of the story. Uh, they seem to be disconnected, this incident with Hagar and her son Ishmael, and then Abraham's conflict with Abimelech. But uh, as you'll see in your bulletin, I, I see these as seeming threats to the fulfillment of God's promise, of which the greatest one, perhaps, in the book of Genesis comes in the next chapter, in chapter 22. But for sake of uh, just the sheer amount of content, we're going to break that into two parts. And so if you think back, God obviously made his promises to Abraham back in chapter 12. Abraham obeyed and headed over to the land of Canaan. And then there was the question of whether Abram was going to trust God when he went down to Egypt. And then the uh, decision to part ways with Lot. And Lot went his own way, Abraham went his own way, and yet Abraham continued to trust God to provide for him. And then there was the issue of Lot getting captured, and God gave Abraham victory over these various Canaanite kings and uh, uh, blessed him through Melchizedek. And then there's a rep uh, repetition of the promise of the son in chapter 15 and the establishment of the covenant. And then a question of whether Abraham is going to wait for the fulfillment of that promise. And you see the scheme that Sarah came up with, that she would give her maidservant Hagar to Abraham to be a concubine, to bear him the son of promise. But Ishmael was not to be the son of promise. And then chapter 17, we have uh, the covenant, the sign of the covenant established as being that of circumcision. Abraham demonstrates obedience again. God repeats his promise. I'm going to give you a son. And not just down the road, five years from now, this time next year, you will have a son. And then the question of Abraham's intercession for Sodom and Gomorrah and the sad outcome of Lot's life at the end of chapter 19. Then Abraham has a repeat, more or less, of the incident down in Egypt where he said, Sarah is my sister, she is added to the royal harem, but now to a Canaanite king instead of to the Egyptian king, God preserves her from any question whether the, the, the baby that would be born to her would be Abraham's or be that of Abimelech. God makes it very clear that it is only Abraham's child, not Abimelech's, and God gives Abram great wealth. And then we come to chapter 21, the fulfillment of the promise, which we looked at several weeks ago. God finally brings Isaac. Sarah describes it as laughter. Those who hear will laugh both in wonder and amazement and also in joy that God has fulfilled his promise. Ironically, in the same passage, we see in verse 9 another kind of laughter. Not a laughter of joy, not a laughter of appreciation, but a mocking laughter. And so we see a foreshadowing of the potential conflict between Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael standing over there, mocking in some way this son of Sarah. And uh, we don't know precisely how old he is at this point, but most likely Isaac is not just a baby at this point. Uh, potentially the two of them are playing, the teenager, the toddler. There's some kind of mocking going on. And we might say, well, it's just just kids playing with each other, what's the big deal? Sarah saw in this incident a foreshadowing of the threat to Isaac's inheritance 
of Abraham's position and blessing and wealth and all of those sorts of things. Because Ishmael was technically the firstborn. Now, in terms of the fact that his mother was not the wife of Abraham, that would have cast some question on his ability to inherit the rights of the firstborn. And yet the fact that he was older was a strong argument in its favor. And so Sarah comes to Abraham and says, he needs to go. And at first this sounds like just the words of a jealous mother watching out for her child against someone else's child. But how do we know that what she was saying was in fact true? And how do we know that there was perhaps a measure of rebuke in um, Abraham's attitude, uh, about Abraham's attitude toward Ishmael? Because when God comes to Abraham in a dream, he says, whatever Sarah tells you to do, do. Which is ironic because the last time this came up, the thing that she advised Abraham to do was not right. It was not according to God's plan for bringing about the promised heir. But in this case, God says, she's right. You are demonstrating an affection toward Ishmael that while natural for a human father is in some ways, if pushed too far, a questioning of my purpose that I have clearly stated, which is that Isaac shall be your promised heir. And so God says the solution is Ishmael's going to have to go out. I will take care of him. Verse 13, I will make a nation also of him because he is your descendant. And so here is this first threat to Isaac as being Abraham's heir. Even though he's been born, even though he's now uh, seemingly in a, in a position where the promise is going to be fulfilled, there's this question of whether Ishmael is going to take his place later on. Because remember, Abraham and Sarah are old. It's not going to be forever that they're going to be around. What's going to happen then? And so God wants Abraham to send Ishmael out. Isaac is the promised heir. Abraham does this seemingly somewhat... Um, in light of verse 11, I would say somewhat hesitantly, but he obeys promptly. He rises early in the morning. He seeks to meet their needs by giving them bread and water. And when it says he gave her the boy, if we think about this, that it's, a, um, it's not like he's handing an infant to Hagar at this point. Ishmael's probably 14, 15 years old at this point, potentially. So he's basically saying, he's yours. Take care of him. So when he says he gave her the boy, it's not like a physical handing over. It's more of a symbolic kind of a thing. And he sends them out into the wilderness. Verse 14 is interesting because it's called the wilderness of Beersheba. And Beersheba means the well of promise or the well of seven, depending on how you understand the Hebrew. But she doesn't know that there's a well because in the next verse, when the water and the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes. And so the author is foreshadowing the name that is going to be used for this place, according to verses 22 through 34, to hint at the fact that God's going to provide for Hagar and for Ishmael in the wilderness. The water is gone. They're in the wilderness. She leaves the boy under one of the bushes, and she went and sat down opposing him about a bow shot away. Why does it mention a bow shot? Look at verse 20. Ishmael's going to become an archer. The author is foreshadowing that God's going to preserve him. God's going to keep his promise. 
She said, do not let me see the boy die. And she is weeping. She is crying out to God. She desires God's help. We have here the irony that Hagar is an Egyptian. Um, we don't know what her standing is before God in terms of was she actually worshiping God in the way that presumably Abraham and Sarah were. And yet God hears the cry of a foreigner who has been cast off, so to speak, gives her attention, hears her prayer. I want to show you the parallel with verse 21. The Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. God had made a promise to Abraham and Sarah. God kept that promise. God made a promise to Abraham on behalf of Hagar. God's going to keep that promise. Verse 17, God heard, God called. So there's a parallel here between God paying attention to Sarah's desire for a son and the fulfillment of the promise and Hagar's desire for her life to be preserved and that of her son. Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad. Arise, lift him up, hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. This is going to foreshadow what we're going to see in chapter 22. God there provides a substitute for Isaac. God here preserves the life of Ishmael. God, though he is not in this passage called the God who provides, is clearly the God who provides. And so it's, it's fascinating to see how all these themes are woven together in seeing God keeping his promise. Some promises that he had made 25 to 27 years before, in this case a promise that he had made just a brief time before, God fulfills this promise. Verse 20, God was with the lad and he grew and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. Um, there is a just in terms of the, the, the way that the language flows, I'm not saying that Ishmael is a foreshadowing of Jesus, but I think it's just interesting to see the description. Uh, you guys are familiar with the verse in Luke 2.52 that Jesus uh, grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. There's a little bit of that here. God is with Ishmael for the sake of Abraham. So remember what God had prophesied about him? He's going to live in the wilderness and he's going to, his hand is going to be against everybody, right? And so this is being brought about. So unlike Jesus, who had favor with God and man, Ishmael is blessed by God through the sake of his connection with Abraham, but going forward, there's going to be conflict with those around him. He lives in the wilderness, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. And so again, we see that though God blesses Ishmael and God fulfills his promises to him, which we're going to also see in um, chapter 25 with the listing of Ishmael's descendants. Um, Ishmael is not the chosen heir. He's in the wilderness. He's a foreigner. He takes a wife from the Egyptians. And other than the mention of his descendants, he seemingly passes off the scene at this point. The point of this passage, though, is not primarily about Ishmael. It's about God preserving his promise by sending away this potential threat to that promise, about God keeping other promises that he has made to Abraham 
which echoes back to Genesis chapter 12, where those who are connected with Abraham will be blessed. Lot was blessed despite himself. Ishmael is blessed despite himself because of the promises that God had made to Abraham. We move to the next scene, this covenant with Abimelech. What is the significance of this covenant with Abimelech? Well, if you remember back to chapter 20, Abraham has done Abimelech wrong. And now we come to chapter 21, and there's going to be this peace treaty between them, this covenant. It came about, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Pretty remarkable statement for a pagan king to be making after Abraham acted the way that he had toward him, right? But he recognizes that even though Abraham had not done right in that situation, God was watching out for Abraham, and he needed to show a measure of respect and that it would be wise to ally himself with Abraham. And so he makes a covenant with him in verse 23. Swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity, but according to the kindness I have shown to you, you shall show to me into the land in which you have sojourned. This perhaps raises questions for us if you think about the story of the uh, Gibeonites later, uh, those people that sneak in, pretend to be from far away, and are really living in the land and are a threat to the people of Israel, people whom God had said, don't let them stay in the land. Was Abraham right in doing what he was doing? And the short answer would be the text doesn't tell us. So there are potentially arguments to be made on both sides. We don't see God saying, Abraham, do this. We don't see an immediate evidence of God's blessing, other than the fact that in verse 33, Abraham calls on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, in, short, in a short time after making this covenant with Abimelech. Probably the arguments that what Abraham did was acceptable would include the fact that God had not said, I am going to uh, wipe out the Canaanites at this time. Remember earlier, a few chapters before, God had said this is not going to take place for four generations, something like 400 years until your descendants come back. The one tension would be in verse 23, not deal falsely with me or my offspring or my posterity. Again, there's, these are questions that we have to wrestle with with regard to this text. The reason that Abimelech, I think, is concerned that people would not deal falsely with him is that's exactly what Abraham had done in chapter 20. And so Abraham promises, he swears it, by God, I will not deal falsely to you. What was the kindness that Abimelech had shown to him? Chapter 20 and verse 14 Sheep and oxen, male and female servants, gave them to Abraham, restored his wife Sarah to him. To Sarah, I have given you a thousand pieces of silver. Back in verse 15, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. This is the kindness that Abimelech has shown to Abraham. He's saying, for the sake of that kindness, don't lie to me again. And Abraham promises to do so. Just as an aside uh, with regard to making oaths. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says, if you make an oath in God's sight, you ought to fulfill it. Because if someone said, I'm going to give such and such for the temple, for the tabernacle, and then they didn't give it, 
God was not going to be pleased with them. God would not say, well, I forgot about it as an acceptable excuse. God was going to require of them the oaths that they had promised. And so Ecclesiastes said, don't make false oaths because God will hold you to them. Jesus comes in the New Testament and says, you Israelites have tried to come to a point of getting out of any oaths that you have made. So you would, you would swear by part of the temple, but not the temple itself, or by this thing, even though all of the earth belongs to the Lord. And you would say, well, that gives you an excuse to not keep the promise that you have made. Jesus said, people ought to be able to take what you say at face value. So, with regard to the question of should we follow Abraham's example here in swearing an oath, I would argue that it should not be necessary for Christians to swear oaths because people should be able to trust us. The person that you often can't trust is the person who says, you can believe me. You know I'm speaking the truth. Why do they have to say that? Why do they have to qualify it in that way? Because a lot of times they haven't, whether it be a salesperson or a politician or maybe us ourselves. And so if we make promises, we ought to keep them. And we ought to be able to speak without having to swear an oath to God that we're going to do the thing that we said that we're going to do, just by way of application from these first few verses. There's a conflict with the covenant, verse 25. Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well of water which the servants of Abimelech had seized. Let's make a, a covenant with each other. We're going to do good to each other. We're going to watch out for each other. We're not going to have conflict with each other. Abimelech's servants take Abraham's well away. This casts some doubt on the sincerity or authenticity of what Abimelech has promised. Abimelech's response is to defend himself. I do not know who has done this thing. Verse 26, you did not tell me, nor did I hear of it until today. So Abimelech is first of all saying, I was not aware of it. And second of all, he's saying, there's a measure of responsibility on you if you know about a problem to let me know. I would not have made this promise with you knowing that there was already this issue going on. And so there's this potential question of, is Abraham's uh, life or wealth or all of the other things that God has blessed him with, is, is there something going to happen to all of those things because of this conflict with Abimelech? And we see how that is resolved beginning in verse 27. Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves, Abimelech said, what do these seven ewe lambs mean? He said, you shall take them from my hand, so it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Therefore, he called that place Beersheba, which means the well of promise or the well of the seven, because there the two of them took an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba, and Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called in the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. God protects Abraham. God secures his position with the people that surround him by means of this covenant. And again, the same sort of questions come to mind. Did Abraham do the right thing? Should he be making a covenant with the people that God is eventually going to send his descendants back into the land to destroy? Um, the narrator does not necessarily come right out and say that it was a sin. There is perhaps a measure of question that should arise in our minds about this. But regardless... The conflict is resolved, and the issue has been dealt with, and Abraham lives at peace in the land. Again, in fulfillment of God's promise. God's going to watch out for him. God's going to take care of him. 
even in cases where Abraham was clearly doing things that he ought not to have been doing, like going down to Egypt and lying about his relationship to Sarah, God protected him. And so even in this, whether we take it as a right or a wrong thing that he did, God protected him, God watched out for him, God kept his promises. And so these first two potential threats to the covenant that God had made to Abraham after the birth of Isaac, is Ishmael going to take Isaac's place? No. Are the people of the land going to come after Abraham and take away all that God has blessed him with? No. And Abraham continues to renew his relationship with God. This story is interesting as well because it's going to come up again in the uh, chapter 26, um, both in terms of Isaac's description of his wife, does the same ploy that Abraham and Sarah had done, and in his conflict with probably another Abimelech, son of the king, the ruler of that particular part of Canaan at that time, there's going to be another conflict over the wells. God is also going to take care of Isaac, just as he has taken care of Abraham. And so we'll see that when we get to that chapter here in a few more weeks. God is keeping his promises. God is watching out for Isaac and for Abraham and making sure that these potential threats do not take away the things that he has promised to his people. One last point, and then we'll tie it into chapter 22. When it says that Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days, there's some question about whether these Philistines are the same Philistines that David and Saul and others are fighting later on in, for example, First and Second Samuel. And there are those that would argue because these are people that are seemingly speaking uh, similar language to Abraham and Isaac and because of the particular region that they're located in, that they are probably not the same Philistines that we see David fighting against, although there might have been some connection um, between the two groups that we're not aware of. What does chapter 21 then have to do with chapter 22? Ishmael was a threat to the covenant, to the promise. Abimelech was potentially a threat to the covenant, to the promise. But the greatest threat, apparently, from a human perspective, is going to come in what God is going to require from Abraham in chapter 22, which is what we're going to look at next week. And there are a number of rich themes in that chapter, and the, the outcome is the same. God, even in the instances where he clearly puts Abraham's faith to the test and uh, brings about these threats to seemingly the fulfillment of this promise, God keeps his promise. God preserves his covenant. God watches over his people. And so by way of application... Abraham seems to have been a little bit hesitant about accepting God's word that Isaac is the one that I'm going to fulfill my promises through. And ironically, Sarah, the one who had led him into sin earlier, is now the one through whom God speaks to say, here's what you ought to do, and is right in this case in chapter 21. Is it possible, or in what ways, do you know that God has said a particular thing is true, but you still want to hold on to something else because you feel like maybe that's the way that things should go? Specific examples. God has said 
Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And there are moments in your day when that doesn't feel like the thing that you want to do. God has said that's the way that it needs to be. Are you willing to submit to what God has said? Or are you going to argue and say, here's what dad and mom have said, but I know better, or I want to do this instead, or I have this really good reason for why it should be a different way? Take God at his word. God has said, Christians, you have fellowship with other Christians. You cannot have fellowship with people in the world the way that you have fellowship with other Christians. And so if you are going to have um, a life that is pleasing to God, unbelievers can't be your closest friends. It would be foolish for you to marry an unbeliever. It would be foolish for you to adopt the attitudes and the perspectives of the world around you. And people will say, well, but it worked out for this person, or it was okay for this person, or it seemed like it was fine in this case. Are we going to take God at his word, or come up with our own reasons for why we think we can go our own way? When it comes to something like spiritual growth, God has said the path to spiritual growth is through my word and prayer. Gathering with my people. You'll find dozens, if not hundreds, of books that will say, here's the key to spiritual growth. It's this special thing that nobody heard about until 2012, and you got to do that thing, and your Christian life will be easy, and it'll just be like you get this zap, and then everything is good, and you don't have to work hard at being a Christian. You're going to take God at his word when he says, the way to follow me is through my word and prayer and gathering with my people? Or are you going to say this newest, latest gimmick, that's the thing i got to do? Take God at his word. Even if you have a strong attachment to the thing that you want to do instead of obey your parents, the person who seems like a really great person, even though he or she is an unbeliever, the, the fad that it's like, this is the way to get close to God, seems like a really great idea. Instead of all those things, take God at his word. What about this passage with the covenant with Abimelech? Can people trust what you say? Part of the reason I think that Abraham ended up making the covenant with Abimelech is because Abimelech didn't trust him. Because of what Abraham had done before. And we all do things at different points in our lives that undermines other people's trust in us. And so the question is, are we going to work to earn back that trust by consistently following after God? Or are we potentially going to go to great lengths and perhaps make foolish promises in God's sight because we want to shortcut the hard work of re-earning that trust. And then the overarching thing from this passage, God is working out a plan in the world. You and I are a part of it. Even when we don't see all of the ways that it could potentially work out in the circumstances that come into our lives. 
Do we have confidence that God is doing the things that He said He's going to do in the world? God's going to have victory over sin, over Satan, over those who would oppose Him. Do we have that confidence? Or do we hang our heads and say, woe is me, and say, everything's going down the tubes and there's nothing we can do about it. God's still at work in the world. Have confidence in that. When Jesus says the gospel can save people, let's be convinced that the gospel can save people. That it's not our clever words or our amazing presentations or our whatever thing, fill in the blank, that is going to save people. It's the simple truth of the scriptures. God's going to have victory. God's going to save people. God's going to help you. God's not going to help you necessarily by making you rich and making all your problems go away and making everybody love you. In fact, he says, most of the people who follow me are going to have difficulty and not have everything that this world has to offer, and life is not going to be easy. And if that sounds discouraging, think about what Paul says. The difficulties of this present age are not to be compared with the glories that are to follow. So, would you rather have a White Castle cheeseburger that somebody left on the counter at work for three days or a steak? Even though it takes a while for the steak to cook and you smell it the whole time and you... I probably shouldn't do this to you guys right before lunch. And you, you smell it cooking, but you have to wait for it to be ready. Which is better? That's the Christian life. We can grab the thing that the world offers to us that's not really as amazing as it promises that we can have right now, or we can wait for what God has promised that is far better. Abraham was continuing to wait for the fulfillment of some of God's promises and did not actually see all of them in his lifetime. And that's true for us as well. But following God is worth the wait. Let's pray. Lord, we have two seemingly disconnected incidents in this passage. Hopefully we've seen a little bit better how they tie into the flow of you keeping your promises to Abraham. Lord, there are things that we can hang on to like Abraham was, or an idea that we think this is, this is the way it ought to be and it, it'll, it'll work out if it goes this way, even when it contradicts clearly what your word has said is going to take place. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be convinced that what you've said is true and no matter how good or attractive our ideas seem, if they contradict your word, we got to put them aside and submit to what you've said. Lord, we live in a society where a lot of people lie and then they get caught and then they make excuses for it. Help one of the ways to be that we are different from the world around us, that we are honest in what we say and do, and that people can trust our word, not so that in pride we can say, look at me, I'm such a great person, but rather so we can say, I serve a God of truth and I strive to live according to that truth and to speak truth. And most importantly, that we would speak the truth about who you are to people around us.
And Lord, as we see where we are in the scope of what you're doing in the world, it's easy for us to think that we're such a small part of that plan that we don't matter, or that you've somehow forgotten about us, or that it's maybe not worth waiting for the things that you have promised. Lord, if the example of Abraham helps teach us anything, Lord, how to help teach us that when we go our own way, instead of according to what you've promised and trusting in your word, life doesn't work. Maybe for a brief time, maybe for a little while. But Lord, when we rest in your promises, we see the amazing things that you accomplish uh, in spite of us, through your power. And we can, in that way, be an example both to those around us and those who will come after us. Lord, help us to live in that way, trusting your promises, even today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.